appreciate your time and work uh, because inclusive tech is a kind of my main part of our work and time to time I meet people who work on robotics and different approaches to learning ecosystems but definitely it's a kind of a the first case when someone will work uh, smart glasses in combination of a compact augmented reality. So I'm really appreciate again uh, your time. How does lockdown happen for you personally, your team and organization? The COVID-19 related lockdown yes, yes. has been a way of us really coming to terms with who we are as an organization and who we are as people. So the measure of a person is not how you do on a good day when everything's going well, but how you do under adversity. And many of our brothers and sisters with uh, neurodevelopmental and neurodiverse challenges also know that life can be full of challenges all day, every day. And sometimes you have to dig in and, and meet them. And sometimes no one will know how much you're going through just to seem to be okay. And I think organizations are going through that. Brainpower has gone through some challenges. And I think we're seeing the opportunity now to work in a way that's actually very inclusive through technology and can meet each people, each person's need on the team. And we do have a lot of neuro neurodiversity on our team. And I see personally that education is changing drastically because of distance learning. And it's going to be it's going to be problematic for a little while, but at the other end of this, we may be able to include more people because we're forced to accommodate them in new ways now at a distance. And that's opened the type of thinking that superintendents are willing to do. Unlike many people uh, who uh, I faced who working on, on this problem, autism, neurodiversity, you have a very extensive academic and research work you've done before. As I explored around 1996, you've started researches in analysis in data display methods related to stroke patient. Later, you continue your work in psychology, cognitive neuroscience, and neural computation. Could you tell me about how did your academic journey evolve and what's your current priority, not from business, but your personal, professional, and scientific perspective? Thank you. Yeah, it's true. I did a, an undergrad in neuroscience and biology and then a master's degree in cognitive neuroscience at MIT and then a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and mind, brain, and behavior at Harvard and then a postdoc at San Diego. I spent some time at Oxford and, and kept going. So why, why you could say, uh, why keep going in the academic route? That's uh, a, a thing that we should always inspect in ourselves in academia and why transfer and translate 
you could say, towards making a product to help people whose whose minds and brains start out uh, in a way and can be defined as different from the way others do, if you want to define it that way. So I'd say that through time, I have had personally an interest in the the way the brain limits and makes possible the human condition. So I've studied the meat of the brain, the wiring diagrams of the brain, but not because it's just amazingly complicated and interesting, but because it is what we are. It is what unlocks or sometimes keeps locked our possibilities as humans. And the parts of the brain that I've studied have always focused on the social and very human interactions. I studied the language system, right? Not the sleep regulation system. All animals have some sort of sleep regulation system, but the human language system is amazing. It's not important whether it's unique or a few animals have something similar. It's just extraordinarily amazing. We can entertain propositions of things that have never happened and will never happen. We can encode things about the universe that are deeply complex, and we can use language to create temporary allegiances so that large groups of people can take on a very, very large task and learn from people who are not there and um, pull together a large project. And that's how humans have done things on this earth that other animals have not. I would say we're also the most empathetic species. You might think, oh no, there's so much hatred now. How could we be the most empathetic species? Well, I can tell you that as much as we love dogs, dog in Baltimore is not aware of the plight of the set of all dogs in Belgrade or Budapest um, or Bhutan. We as humans are aware of the entire plight of the human species around the world. And that is a type of empathy that's not possible without language and is not there amongst other species. Um, I don't think, you know, maybe whales at a great distance, but it's an amazing thing that we have this level of empathy. And right now I'm trying to be part of taking technology to help with that empathy instinct that we have in order to include more people whose minds and brains are different uh, into the conversation of, of life. I would love to ask you about how did you became, become involved in neurodiversity topic because uh, as I understood, while though neurodiversity, autism was explored and studied uh, before many years ago, it became uh, truly um, uh, popular uh, due to the uh, incorporation of a term of neurodiversity, and it was ex uh, actively promoted by different activi the activists and people who tried to push the whole movement, like people like Judy uh, Singer were connected on LinkedIn. Uh, again, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just my feeling that actually it was, there was a huge uh, role of uh, people from social movement who tried to push uh, uh, this uh, term and this problem in the mainstream. Based on your experience, how uh, neurodiversity in autism uh, is represented in academic world? How many people uh, work on this problem and how did you become involved in, the, uh, in this topic? I can optimistically say that more people than ever before are aware of the term neurodiversity, and some of them 
have a good working definition that is useful inside academia and elsewhere. I, being an academic, I know when I don't know, so I don't know the numbers. I don't even know the real trend lines. Is it like this? Is it like this or this? But it is upward. And why does that matter? Well, neurodiversity could start out as a, a way of just being kind, but almost patronizingly kind. Oh, you're different. We won't bully you anymore. And we'll kind of let you sidle on over to the conversation. Um, maybe that's a useful first step, but I'm so glad we're much beyond that. And we get to conversations that we can borrow from race dialogue around an important thing called representation. So representation means I see me in you. I look at CEOs, I look at presidents, I look at athletes, and I see someone who looks like me. So now I feel like the meta message is I could be one of them, one of them could be me. And that's the first part of representation. But one of the value propositions to representation, in addition, is that that thing that I feel represented in is now going to improve because there are others like me there. So if you're making uh, a phone and you only have right-handed people ever in the engineering team, then someone needs to use it left-handed. It will not be arranged well. It just, it will be a bad kludge to try to figure out how to use this thing with your left hand. It's a small detail, but it's relevant. So if we don't have people who have um, different kinds of hair, different kinds of uh, facial structures, and different kinds of thought patterns, thought patterns a little bit dicey, but anyway, different ways of looking at the world and being, then we cannot design products, experiences, um, research, etc. for them. Even research, even academic research. If you only take the available pool of predominantly um, white 18 to 22 year old college students who have discretionary uh, time and are the ones who are going to respond to your ads for your research, and you say, I've done research on humans, or I've done research on people with autism, uh, you haven't because you haven't reached into different subgroups, socioeconomic groups, ages, and nations, and there may be differences in whatever you're studying. I mean, obviously, if you're studying sickle cell anemia, then it matters which country and which group you, you study. If you're studying alcoholism, if you're studying um, schizophrenia. Now, we don't like to think too much about groups that you can't choose, you know, racial groups or gender groups having a different disease outcome likelihood, but we know that it's actually true. So if you're going to study those things and you don't include those people in your sample, your study won't be very good. You might have a drug that works for everyone, but it's not in everyone. It's in everyone within one category. So that's important. Well, if you're doing research, if you're doing product creation, and again, you make, you know, a shaver, a tripod, a pill, a, um, you know, a speech device, and you don't have people amongst you who look, walk, talk, um, yeah, etc., like the representative sample of the populace, then you're in trouble. In fact, because some people don't walk and some people don't talk, and some people have very 
different ways of interacting with the world. So representation works in both directions. Um, so now I'm, I'm preaching, but what I'm saying is that these are some of the mentalities that are starting to come online amongst academic colleagues and business colleagues in, in the circles I'm in. Does everyone think this way? No. Uh, what can we do to help them think this way? Model it and succeed. Model it and succeed. So do it and then, uh, you know, don't fail. Keep going. Prove that you can make a go of something that is both a humanitarian cause and actually, in this case, business. Unlike uh, mental health disorders, and you mentioned it uh, and describe it clear, neurodiversity considered uh, is an individual spectrum. However, many conditions sometimes can be confused, and I explore it even on internet when people with autism spectrum initially were diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder or uh, similar conditions. Um, how exactly we could distinguish it? and how uh, scientists and researchers try to solve this problem and actually go to, uh, on one hand, go in, with, in different direction, mental health and, and neurodiversity, at the same time, uh, pick different lessons from both directions in order to synergize with, uh, uh, with uh, scientific work and problem. Very interesting. So essentially, you're talking about on the one hand, over-medicalization yeah. of things, and also, though, what are the strategies that we can borrow from things that are definitely medical and things that are definitely not medical? Um, the interesting thing about life is that sometimes there are very, very clear categories, but the things that are most important don't fit neatly into those categories. Neurodiversity is not a disease. That's true. And yet, there are some benefits to something being labeled as a condition, let's say. Autism might actually be 72 different uh, subcategories of behavior and mindset. You can't get funding for 72 small groups of people from Congress. But if there's one group that's 3.2 million families, you can get funding. And you can make it a big deal that people have to pay attention to. So on the one hand, it's probably good to group all these things into this label called autism and to somewhat treat it like a disease because the American public knows what to do with that. Oh, let's throw some medical dollars at it and let's help. Um, but on the other hand, the side effect is that you have people who just are, they just are and they see the world in some way and they're labeled as a disease and people want to cure them and make them go away. So that is a bad side effect of grouping and labeling. Now, one response I could have is let's take away the stigma from everything. Let's take away the stigma from diseases. Let's take away the stigma from mental health. And let's take away the stigma from um, having autism or strabismus or uh, sensory processing disorders and make everything just happy and spectrum with no stigma. If we can do that, that's fabulous. However, that's a very optimistic goal. So along the way, we need to be careful and we need to, let's say, um, give help without giving pity to people. 
to reach and lift without looking down upon and feeling as inferior, if you know what I mean. And that is difficult as a society because it's difficult as an individual. If you meet someone with burns, uh, visible burns, face and hands, um, kind of the right response is to treat someone as a someone and the burns as something as, as trivial as a foot, as a shoe. Um, and to just ask the person's opinion about astronomy or philosophy uh, and neither turn away nor focus on, on the burns. Um, but it is actually difficult and you can be a good meeting person and to say, I want to help because I see that there's something that's, that's going to be difficult for you and, and overly focus on that uh, and to patronize. So if an individual who's well-meaning and uh, good-intentioned uh, struggles to do that at an individual level, as a society, it is a struggle. It is difficult. So I'm somewhat giving an excuse, if, if you don't mind, um, if society sometimes feels patronizing, but I'm saying that we can do better. And the way to do better, if I can invent on the fly here, might be to talk about well-being instead of diseases. So not mental health or mental disorders, but mental well-being. Nearly all humans suffer from anxiety sometimes. We get a higher level of mental well-being by meditation and breathing exercises. Nearly a quarter of people, let's say, have a clinical depression at some point. We can get better well-being um, through mindfulness and intentionality, and sometimes through, through pharmaceutical drugs. Um, there are some people who, who have um, severe schizophrenia. And for better mental well-being, it's more likely that drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, will help, and some very intensive um, uh, work. So we go from something that is much more likely to be the domain of medical to something like you know, generalized anxiety um, or just, just social nervousness that needn't be medical and well over on the other side of the spectrum. But if we can bring them all together under a mental well-being mindset, then we take away the stigma from the worst and we can borrow the methods to the ones that are in between that might be good with therapy with drugs, with better social cohesiveness, with a more accepting society, and with mindfulness and breathing exercises. Uh, I completely agree with you regarding, uh, so we, we don't need to stigmatize everything which related to autism. But at the same time, unfortunately, since we have no uh, inclusive ecosystem, classrooms um, and workplaces, we still have a pretty negative statistics. And for instance, in the UK, uh, based on, on my statistic, around 80% of people with autism or different kind of autistic spectrum are not employed full time. For the US, it's around 90%. Uh, I would love to ask you, uh, based on your uh, data, how is numbers close to a reality? And uh, what's your opinion about the key challenges uh, for people with autism spectrum? It's more about unemployment and access to education, workforce, social isolation and distancing, 
related mental health issues we face due to the lack of an opportunity or is everything um, in both? I trust the statistics that say 80% or more of people with autism uh, have no consistent job. And also around that number or more have no consistent romantic partner. And while many other things in life uh, can be very difficult and challenging to miss, I would put those at the top, that having a, a consistent job is extremely important for mental well-being and actualization and having a romantic partner. Uh, likewise, these are gateways to so many of the experiences of life. Now, I say romantic partner, it doesn't have to be sexual, it doesn't have to be marriage, but it's someone who bonds with you and irrationally will be there to look after you. And that's important for so many reasons. If someone trips and falls at home and is down on the ground and no one fought, uh, picks him or her up, that could lead to death instead of a temporary injury because there was no one there. If no one is checking on you on a daily, weekly basis, then these things, so there's some negative, real, absolutely basic health issues there. But as you point out, also depression and, and um, despondency can come from that as well. And that's, what, that's the negative. And on the positive side, we learn from each other. So being in a relationship, even struggling through the complexities of a relationship can cause each person to grow and to get closer toward a behavior that will give you access to other things, being invited to gatherings and into workplace gatherings, which comes back to the other point. So what I'm saying is why it's actually important to have these things and to focus on. So why is it important to be employed? It turns out the single most protective thing against negative mental health outcomes is steady employment. Being employed gives an event horizon, gives a reason to get up and a segment in the day between on and off. That segment boundary is structure and structure is predictability. And as, as you know, structure and predictability are very important for the brain, perhaps more so for the autistic brain, if we can say that's one thing, which it's not, but overall. Uh, so the job gives you that. The job gives you a reason to plan for today, next month, next year, and career progression across years. That protects against uh, depression and suicide. It's also a set of people who are looking after you, even if they aren't your romantic partners. They know you're there, and they will notice if you're not. That's the baseline. And then there's the satisfaction of a job well done. There's the satisfaction of colleagues celebrating your birthday and being a member of gainful employment in society. And these are all very important. So why are 80% of people unemployed? If I had the full answer to that, boy, I would be out there making sure that we employed these people uh, much better. But I have some answers. One of the things that marks autism, for instance, is difficulties in reading other people's emotions and reading the room, as they say. Knowing when to laugh, knowing when to make a joke, knowing when someone is upset. One of the things that marks autism 
is um, being able or willing or willing to stomach the complexity of looking toward other people. It's such a seemingly simple social grace to make eye contact or at least look toward a person. But for some people on the spectrum, it basically hurts. It's not fun, it's aversive. And for some people on the spectrum, it, um, it just might forget to do it. Like, whoops, I just, why is that so important? I didn't notice. And for some, maybe we don't know the, the reason. But if you don't do it, the other side is less likely to trust you and is less likely to hire you. And that's something that you can look at statistical fact on. So even if it's aversive, many things about employment are aversive. Um, is there a way to make that easier and to make it fun to do? Brain power is predicated on making some of those things fun, like a video game, so that even if it's not your favorite thing to do, it can be fun, you can get over it, and then you can get a job. And, but that's not the only thing, it's reading other people's emotions, uh, being used to, getting used to places faster. So it turns out if you get used to your cubicle and then you have to move and, and you really don't want to and stress about it for several months, then that's understandable, but also the employer can be very confused by that and it can, it can get in the way of your job. So those are some of the things. Now, I would be remiss, I only focused on one half. I focused on the half of people who don't fit the archetype and the norm in a job place, but the other half matters at least half as much. So employers can be taught how to be sympathetic and empathetic to people who think and behave differently. Employers can be taught to understand a little bit about what it's like to be in the mind of someone who needs extremely clear instructions and also hates noise, as that's just one stereotype, um, and there's so many profiles. So employers can, employers can learn how to interview someone who won't make any eye contact. I've certainly done that. We've hired multiple people with autism and sometimes um, they will never look at me over the course of years of employment, and that's okay for me. It's not so okay for most hiring managers, and most hiring managers have hundreds of resumes, so they're not likely to choose one that seemed, seemed angry at them or seemed untrustworthy, because that's how it comes across sometimes. So we can train them to not have that narrative, to not think of it as untrustworthy, to understand the profiles, and we can tell them some other secrets. For instance, a person with autism who's comfortable and feels dignity working at your company is much less likely to leave and go for the competitor. I don't yet have data on that per se, but what we do know about profiles and personalities say that a predictable, structured daily life at one company is something you don't want to give up and going to a competitor because they'll give you a few more dollars is, is really not the thing uh, that's gonna come first to that mind. And so you might have a more loyal employee, you might have an employee who can settle into a routine and do very well. Again, I'm just going on one stereotype or one archetype with the routine based, but it's a fairly common one, even in, in our experience in employing. Um, in addition, there are other secrets about why it's a value to the company let alone a value for being a good person and being part of society. So if we meet at both ends, where someone on the spectrum or someone with other physical or cognitive differences um, can 
learn skills that are useful in a job environment and an interview environment, and the employer can learn how best to treat that person with dignity and bring out the strengths, then we can take that number from 80% unemployed down, down, and down, and as low as we can possibly go. Now, I would love to talk about brain power uh, itself, your main work. Uh, you've been working on brain power uh, since 2013, and I can imagine with all every time the product itself uh, evolved, you uh, learn some lessons, make it better. Uh, which, uh, uh, what was your initial MVP? Which type of audience and type of spectrum could you try to tap at the beginning? And how did your product and technology evolve over time? What lessons you have learned? Thank you. So you've asked what our minimum viable product or MVP yes. was, brain power, and you've asked what the evolution was like. I'll focus a little bit on the evolution and I'll say we didn't have an MVP. Why didn't we have an MVP? Because we didn't jump to product. We immersed ourselves in autism communities. So I and then the team that started building went out and also brought in. So what do I mean? Um, in, in like the middle of the company history, there's something so notable, I want to jump to that, which is that Brainpower, I bought an RV, recreational vehicle, basically a long truck that you live in, and it's more common in America, but for your international audience. And we drove that live-in truck around the country to places like West Virginia and Missouri, and Tennessee, as well as New York and, and Plymouth, Massachusetts, really a spectrum of life situations. And we met families that include people on the autism spectrum. We met families, we met people at clinics, and we immersed ourselves with, with simple questions in mind. Like, what does autism mean for you? And that's a different answer for each person on the spectrum and their brothers and sisters and their parents and their uncles. And some answers are not very pleasant and you have to be ready for that. You have some ignorant answers. Uh, you have people who don't invite their own sister over for Christmas because they don't want their kids to catch autism from the other kids. And there's so much wrong built into that, but it exists and we can't just sit here and indignate it away. And so that's there. But also on a more, you know, less surprising basis, it just complexities and nuances of what is difficult in life and what things could be useful. And so instead of building a product and seeing where it went, we listened to the voices. And then we started doing scientific studies with a very basic but open-ended product that some small aspect of eye contact, some small aspect of posture and you know attentive posture some small aspect of reading other people's emotions and we did scientific clinical studies for you know, a couple of years to understand how those impacted people before we tried to rush out there with the product for other people's children because i take that very seriously um, and it works with adults and children but so that's kind of the philosophy of it but let's make it tangible for your audience I brought one right here. So right now I'm wearing the brain power glasses. The hardware is made by Google 
the firmware and software are fashioned by brain power. As you see, you see my eyes, I see you. Well, I don't see all your audience, but I can see whoever. So you see me, I see you, but I also see a screen. On that screen, I get information that's relevant, that motivates me and helps it be fun to do certain social behaviors that are useful for things like getting an interview and, and a date. What are those things? Like, I get points, I get reminded to look back towards any human face, and then whoop, I get like cartoons or motivation and sports figures, whatever drives my particular likings, and I get points for it. I get points immediately, and I get long-term build-up to what I call smile stuff. Um, so we make it a video game, but I'm still in real life. I'm not locked down on an iPad. I'm not locked behind a big virtual reality set. I'm right here. And you're right here. And we're interacting. And that human-human interaction is part of the whole magic. We just are the scorekeeper and the motivator. Uh, there is an opinion uh, that there is no the same autism, and you mentioned that there is at least around 70 types of uh, different subconditions. Um, so I would love to ask you, how could we adapt brain power or similar solutions to each individual? It's more about uh, preliminary scoring uh, tests. Uh, can we automate this process? Yes. So. There are probably many flavors of autism. No one knows the number. The point is that people are unique and they face unique challenges. However, if we think about the goals, there are some similarities. So if that goal is the social inter inter integration, if the goal is self-sufficiency, uh, then we think backward from what are the steps to get there. So we think of what the lessons are that are useful to learn. In school, it's very simple to learn lessons, like for math, there are books that tell you what are the stages of math, and then it's up to the teacher how to adapt those teachings to different students. Well, in this social-emotional learning space, we think about, again, decoding other people's emotions, squaring up your posture towards them, whole-body listening. These are useful skills. So then the question is how to make a game-like experience that works for um, almost all people. It'll never, I never like to say all of anything, but how do we try to reach as many people as possible? So one thing that we've done that I've invented in, in BrainPower's tools is a type of uh, motivational structure. First of all, it grows with you. As you get better at the talent, it gets harder in a way and adapts towards you but it doesn't get harder by getting more like a game it gets more like real life you see most games are designed to keep you in the game they are life support systems for themselves to keep you going on the game our games are designed to get you off the game and like training wheels to someday take them off and be part of regular life but if regular life is challenging like if it is kind of painful and difficult to look towards someone, then that's what you have to build toward. So we have the multiple stages. And the first one 
there are like five different ways that you're being motivated and you're seeing and hearing things on screen. As you get to higher levels, you're seeing less and less and less on screen and less real time and more right at the end. And so it becomes kind of less of a handholding and more of a long-term motivation so that you wean yourself uh, toward um, the self-sufficiency. We practice a zero punishment paradigm. So you're never told what you did wrong, just reminded when you've done something well. We have another thing I'm very, I care about is the micro successes versus macro successes. So a micro success is something very easy to achieve, but you can start achieving a lot of them. So it builds your confidence, even if you're almost at zero confidence and you can get better and better. It's satisfying. And I tell you, even like adult neurotypical uh, high performing folks like superintendents put this thing on and they start earning points and they get 8,000 points and they think, yes, I got 8,000 points. But then there are macro successes that might take you 15 seconds or a half a minute or three minutes to build to it. And that builds that um, delayed gratification. If you understand the two marshmallow problem, it builds that reserve and resiliency uh, towards longer term goals. So all of these things are applicable at whatever level you're starting and wherever you go. And they don't presuppose that you have a um, sound sensory sensitivity or a light sensory sensitivity or that you struggle with eye contact more than emotions. We have something for you almost wherever you are. I'll always say almost, but uh, almost wherever you are at level or the thing you want to work on or your parents or teachers believe is important for you to work on, there's something there. As you get better, it'll get harder because it gets less like a game. Uh, you mentioned uh, what we call uh, adoption of a brain power is uh, related not only only type of a spectrum, but also type of the challenges uh, people face. Uh, on your side, you mentioned that one of your cases is ADHD and attention deficit. So I would love to ask you, can we use brain power for conditions like, for instance, depression, when people face uh, some similar type of challenges like a lack of uh, concentration and we need to add more colors uh, for, uh, in my day in order to improve perception of some things, concentration uh, and my relationship with people, or it's not really case. Mm. So you've asked how far we can push the current brain power system beyond yes. autism. And we have published papers on autism and we have published papers on uh, ADHD. We have not formally studied beyond that. We've not studied, for instance, depression. Also, importantly, we're not a medical product. We are an education and empowerment product. I have to say those things legally and also because I'm careful. So I know what we have directly addressed, which is autism and some amount of ADHD. Now, when you bring up these other conditions and uh, ways of being, you are instinctively doing that because you know there's a crossover. 
instance, within autism and ADHD, there's a 30% crossover. And there's no law that says you have to have only exactly one condition. And in fact, these conditions are artificial boundaries. So there are people who would fall into a different label, but need to acquire some of the same skills. And since we brain power produces a system that helps you learn social and emotional skills, then it can help. Um, but I can't say that we can take on depression with a capital D in a medical way and move the needle there because we haven't tested that yet. What I can say is that people are motivated to use uh, the brain power glasses and that they learn certain skills that are social and emotional from it. And the process itself is very engaging and probably increases mindfulness and um, a metronome structure to life. All of those things can be beneficial to many people who have some of the challenges you mentioned. Um, your motto in, in part of your value proposition is autism uh, education. And I would say that many, for instance, assistive robotics companies try to go in similar way. We don't position themselves as a hardware uh, developers or robotics companies, but as a learning companies. Uh, did you position BrainPower as a learning and education company uh, since the beginning, or it was uh, some kind of a pivot uh, after some experiments uh, as a device company? People often ask, Ned, are you running a Google Glass company? Are you running an augmented reality company? Are you running a, an autism company? And I say, uh, thanks for the question, but I often just say, I'm running a mission. And a mission, you use what tools you have available. It turns out I have training in certain types of tools. I have a you know, PhD from Harvard in neuroscience, so I should probably stick close to the brain. Otherwise, I'm going to be very far from anything I can say with authority. And I'm a, I'm a nerd. I like tech. So I like cool new gadgets. But what was important in the founding of BrainPower is that I realized these cool new gadgets and tech are actually an equalizer. So you could think that something so fancy and futuristic would exclude some people, or you could think that having to use a very powerful computer could exclude some people. But I traveled around the world and uh, in, in I took one trip before I started BrainPower and kind of backpacked around 23 countries and in, in even the poorest parts I went, everyone had a mobile phone. And I think because mobile phones connect you with other people, it's so important. It's the last thing you'll give up. And that really hit home because it wasn't a technology for them. They weren't thinking about the silicon printed board inside it. They were thinking about their grandma and they were thinking about the groups they're part of. And so it was an inherently social thing and it was an equalizer because they may not have a home computer and they may not have um, access to, to actually go to MIT, but they can take the courses from there, from their phone uh, and, and other just very basic daily social things. 
So I, I realized that technology can be an equalizer. And so brain power is a mission. And it's a mission to empower people who might otherwise get left behind because of individual and invisible differences of their brain. That includes injury. If you fall off a ladder or you get struck in, in a war, you can have a terrible injury that leaves no scar and no one can see why you're different, but you're going to lose your wife and your job and maybe go to jail because you'll behave so differently. Because you have an injury to the meat of your brain. It's a physical thing. But it just comes across as he's now behaving differently. So that's an invisible difference. And I care about people with invisible differences to their brain. And the technology is a tool. Artificial intelligence is a tool. And the modern times where there's more empathy and awareness, that's a tool that makes this possible that wouldn't be possible before. Um, I would love to ask you about uh, Corpus. Microsoft is known for its active work in promotion of uh, diverse and multi-diverse design. Uh, you work with uh, Google, uh, Google Glasses. I believe you had an opportunity to talk to many big companies, unicorns. Uh, based on your experience, do you feel that uh, big corporate world is interested in building neurodiverse ecosystems, uh, workflow, um, uh, workplaces? I think some large companies actually care about building neurodiverse teams. A larger number of them the ones here's the ones who care. Then there's a greater number who want to pretend they care. And there's some number who don't care. I think a good activist will use all of that. The ones who care, you can have a conversation and say, here's something that will actually directly help. The ones who want to pretend they care, you force them to get you on stage, you get them on stage, you get them to make commitments, and then they might not really care, but they've just committed publicly and you help to make sure that they get benefit from that, like really good articles written about them in the press, fan their flames, make them feel like they're the bee's knees because they pretended to care. And then eventually it becomes true because companies are sets of people and people will be attracted to companies who have that mentality. And if they see that there's a benefit, it, um, you know, that will happen. Uh, what, what I'm saying is that will happen is it will become true. The ones who don't seem to care use FOMA, fear of missing out, guilt them and shame them. Uh, so you can use all of those things. I'd say Google actually cares. I've been to Google, I don't know, 30 times on campus. I've been invited to give lectures and talks nine or 10 times by Google. There's another one coming up this summer. And when you go to the bathroom seems like a trivial thing but they literally have signs on the walls that are just there teaching you some interesting thing about science or, or society and giving you kind of a, a moral charge a moral instruction of some way to help in society it's there it's really there it's there in the meetings it's there in how people pay attention to each other it's there in the very diverse teams and it's there in the fact that they have supported brain power for years Google 
has BrainPower listed as a partner on their website. And they have made it very, very easy for us to do our development um, when, or I could say it's generally hard to do development and this hardware platform is new. So it could be extremely difficult, but they have lessened that burden for us quite a bit. So they care. And I have experience with other companies and like I say, there's just different levels to which they care or pretend to care. We can use all of that. They will kind of be societally forced now to have a, a group inside that looks after the interests of the neurodiverse. Um, if they're less evolved or less large, they might just have one group that looks after mostly physical disabilities and with a little bit of a sidearm for cognitive differences. But if they're large enough, they'll, they'll separate those. And... You can use those advocacy groups, get involved, and and push it outward from there. Change happens from within. Uh, one of the huge challenges in inclusive technologies to bring it to the market. Uh, based on your side, you have uh, two main ways how you uh, sell brain power as uh, schools and home users. Uh, what's the proportion of your sales and uh, what's the best way for you to bring your mission to the market and which challenges you face uh, in both cases, schools and uh, home users and families? Yeah, so schools and home users can buy the brain power system from us and the best way for them to do that is to go to our website, brain-power.com and we we care about these two use cases so much and so they are different the benefit for a school the benefit for a home is a different proposition and we've found success in both cases in bringing our value to them and when i say bringing value i do mean selling a product and we're selling hope uh, so exact numbers and percentages i don't think are particularly necessary for the conversation. It's just that um, we bring a value proposition to school and to home. So for instance, at home, you care about your, your child and the future. Should you be building out a college fund or, or just building out the home? Will this person have autonomy and self-sufficiency later? Well, some of the gating concerns there might be can he or she um, look toward you, understand you, acclimate to new experiences, uh, deal with sudden change, deal with going to Walmart or a, a restaurant, and um, kind of learn to control some internal states and behaviors. And you want a prediction, usually. Like, where's this going? Is he doing well? He's not doing the same as his brother, but they're different ages, and I don't know what's what to expect. So we give data. We give the ability for you to make predictions, and we give a fun system that even people who don't like to put on sunglasses, they like to put on these glasses that suddenly turn you into a fun cartoon character. And now schools have a very different need. They need to accommodate students uh, on the autism spectrum and others with social emotional learning needs and they want tools that can provide data for those iep reports they want tools that can help teach special education at a distance 
So now we have the ability in COVID era to teach social skills, not social studies and not math, but social skills and emotional self-regulation at a distance and to collect data and to track the IEP reports in a rigorous way and get automatic charts and automatic IEP reports from them. Um, so there are different reasons and different use cases, but all towards the same thing of the well-being and self-sufficiency of people on the spectrum or with ADHD and SEL challenges. Uh, how so is they, it? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, as, as because some people might be interested in understanding how they can get brain power for the home or school, uh, if you don't mind, again, I just want to redirect to our website at brain-power.com. And I hope you'll go and check it out and just leave a note for us to contact you so that we can empower you and your family. How is easy for, for educators to use it? Do, do we need some kind of special education in order to adapt it? Or they just provide students with brain power and every, everything just work? Brain power is, is easy to use and easy to integrate into your classroom. I think that's really important. Teachers really enjoy hearing from other teachers on how they integrate. So for instance, you can have a one-on-one -on -one session for 15 minutes in a general education classroom and give something that is clinically proven to improve their symptoms. So you don't have to have complex training and you don't have to do this all day. The kids aren't wearing this all day. It's shared from one kid to the next. We actually did a scientific study showing that regular adults can learn how to use it in one hour, in just one hour. And that to learn a little more details of Wi-Fi and, and troubleshooting might take a few more hours. But we're talking hours. So a regular professional development or PD kind of uh, training on this will allow you to learn brain power and integrate it into your classroom. Classrooms can be subset, substantially separate, pull-out class, classrooms. The occasional pull-out situation can be full inclusion. And integrating it is like integrating, you know, this PEX board, like integrating something on an iPad, but this is so much better than an iPad because they're looking up and they're looking at you and they're part of what's going on around them. Uh, before uh, you uh, tell me about how people with autism spectrum can change their life and they became consistent in terms of a job, their uh, day routine, uh, some predictive uh, plans and so on, what was your the most interesting case when someone actually struggled to be socialized, uh, have no job, uh, have a uh, wasn't able to be socialized or uh, been involved in education, but after some uh, using of your tools uh, and help, uh, became able to become a part of this social flow again and socialized and hopefully become uh, more and less happy. Absolutely. Thank you. I'll give a few examples from the many years of seeing 
people on the autism spectrum use brain power. So one example, a, um, you know, a young man had taken a liking to a girl in his class. And boy, he was terrified. And he didn't know how to talk to her. And after using brain power for several months, he brought up the courage to ask her to the middle school dance. And she said yes. And his mom called and said, oh, wow, this is a transformation. And I don't know exactly what it is or how it happened, but we're sure that it had something to do with brain power. A similar situation in high school, uh, a kid in a, in a different part of town, and he was very shy. But he, he again, he liked a young lady in his class. These are the real motivators, right? And he showed up at the dance, the high school dance. And this guy is very shy in crowds. And he had a breakdance routine that he had practiced. And he just did it. And all his classmates were so impressed that he had the confidence and that he did that. And they loved it. So they all applauded. But of course, the sound of the applause scared him away. So he, he left. But it was an amazing moment. The principal of the school called me to say he believes that had to do with brain power. And now let's go older and then younger. So older, I was at a, a large corporation, can't say the name, and was speaking with someone who is on the autism spectrum and was working there in a, in a professional role at this large company. And she put on the, the glasses from brain power and she experienced it. And she thought about how it was for her as a childhood. And she said, oh boy, if I had had this as a child, things would have been very different. And when I asked her to elaborate, what she said is, I could have learned things that took me years to learn in a formulaic and rapid way. That's an older, and now let's go young to an eight-year-old who was using the emotion charades game where he's learning emotions with his mom. And while he's doing it, he's looking in every direction, and you don't even know he's paying attention at all. And then he puts on the glasses, and he's looking straight at his mom, so he seems to be paying more attention, but in between the parts of the clinical study, we ask questions. And they're questions about the emotions to figure out if they really kind of grasped it. And <laughs> the, the prompts in the software ask questions like, do you feel happy? Tell me some words that are happy. Um, when did you feel sad? And they kind of pull your emotions. Well, in the middle of just looking around everywhere and we're thinking he's not even listening, he says, you know, mom, your anger is my sadness. We're like, what? I mean, the open question is, does he even understand anger? Because we're just showing an emoji for anger and asking him to think about anger. How can he understand it? Do we know he's understanding it? Eight-year-old says, mom's anger is my sadness. Of course, she started crying. Um, so these are moments where the games and the apps that we have at BrainPower seem to break through and someone really starts crying or is just 
feels integrated socially that was never possible before. I would love to ask you about uh, funding and financial uh, side of inclusive technology in general. Uh, I try to be in touch with different kinds of startups related to uh, inclusive tech. Many of them uh, come as a spin-offs uh, or former students from Harvard, MIT, and I would say even extremely brilliant teams with great ideas uh, often struggle uh, to be sustainable because we just don't fit so-called Y Combinator game. Uh, metrics, uh, amount of time we need in order to become sustainable, amount of investments, we just don't fit uh, this process. So we either go crowdfunding, try to bootstrap or just out of money. How uh, difficult it was for you to become uh, sustainable? BrainPower was able to show a value proposition early and get some grants. We were able to compete for highly competitive federal grants. And in fact, one of them, the Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program, uh, gave us an autism-specific grant for jobs, for helping people uh, become <clears throat> employed. And they've featured us multiple times on their website as a success case. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to get the next level of grant from them that can take this to even a much, much uh, more significant level. So we've had grants <clears throat> from charities, even charities have given to us as a company because we serve out their mission in a very practical way. We've had grants from companies like Google. And then we've been able to generate revenue from our products. And that's something where we're always looking for more schools to partner with and to really expand the reach. So we, we got lucky and I think we put in good value and extreme hard work. I always had a little inflatable bed under my desk and I'd stay at the office night after night after night for, um, you know, on and off over the course of years. And some of our team members would really dig in and, and you know, at home work through their nights. And we really were able to pull something together that was might have taken years of work of, of hundreds of people in, in a much shorter time in a smaller team. We've had so many students as interns, sometimes volunteers, sometimes just short uh, paid internships, but they've done so much and put their heart and soul into it. So we've been able to come further, faster than, than we might have otherwise. And yet, I, I can't lie, it is challenging. People want to give money to companies that are going to do some viral marketing scheme or a better way of checking the financial markets and, and just sucking money off the top of money inside money to make money. And we're definitely here for impact. But the, the luck is that we have been lucky, and I can take some credit for the luck by saying we've put hard, serious work into making sure that this is, that what brain power sells is science-based and meets the needs that the community has told to us. So we know that they are their needs. Communities, parents and people on the spectrum and teachers and employers. So um, I'd say, I have a little bit of optimism for you there, and yet I have empathy for others in the space, and we've seen those struggles, and, and we know that many people and companies struggle 
to make a go of assistive technology. You mentioned what you work not on device company or learning company, you're working on mission. Um, in which space we have uh, many teams who try to tackle um, autism challenge from different perspective. We have, uh, for instance, platforms which try to help people to find a job in technology, data science, like Ultranodes, or we have a uh, robotics um, would help to uh, adapt learning process uh, for uh, kids and teenagers. How do you consider uh, teams uh, which not uh, direct competitors, but who work uh, on the same problem from a different perspective. Do you consider them as a kind of a coalition uh, or from different perspective? We're on a mission. So other people on the same mission are likely to be our friends. And it really depends on the specifics. Um, on the one hand, of course, I'm an inventor, so I have inventorship, um, and I don't want someone copying that and then maybe doing it not as well and, and harming the people involved and harming our, uh, brand. But in general, we're all trying to do something similar and in fact, a little bit different someone who might have a kid on the spectrum and I don't, someone might have a kid on the spectrum who's older might focus on those employment issues, who's younger might focus on early start type issues, and communication, and we need an ecosystem like that. Temple Grandin says the world needs all kinds of minds. Well, the economic world or the corporate world needs all kinds of companies. Because we're going to focus on a little bit of the whole pie. Each of us will have to focus. You, you die if you don't focus. So each focus will be a little different. So we can work together as, as a coalition. And I do believe in that. It's optimistic, but I believe in it. It doesn't mean that if someone comes in and tries to copy, I'm not also going to behave like a company and, and make sure they don't do that. But overall, we can work together towards the empowerment and self-sufficiency of people on the spectrum. And my final question, I believe that one of the key shifts uh, I see in inclusive technology movement uh, is that we realize what we need to build uh, technology would help not only adapt and fit uh, the existing world, but actually perform uh, and compete. So we should uh, overcome situation, the 80% of people just completely uh, have no uh, ability to work uh, full time. So my question is, how do you think, how are we close to the situation when people with autism spectrum will be able to live in uh, a life full of different experiences like involvement in education, in different kinds of occupation, complete in happy life yeah so that will happen on february 26 2029 at 4 p.m <laughs> no i mean we can't know and we can't predict um but we can work hard every day and i can tell you optimistically that the level of awareness has gone up uh, 
maybe exponentially, maybe geometrically at least, in this decade, I can tell you that we have technologies that we never had before. And we have a large army of people who want to adapt them for good use. I can tell you that almost everyone has access to a smartphone, even in rural parts of Malaysia and Mali and Mississippi. And they all have very rural parts. And I can be optimistic. I can also say that we have a long way to go still. And disability rights have suffered and struggled for so long in America. And we've had to enact very large laws that help, but then many institutions just limp along and satisfy the checkbox um, minimal nature of those laws and don't have the funding or the will or really the understanding to do more than that. And, and yet they usually meant well-meaning, especially in terms of schools. And I know that we have a long way to go for society. You know, individuals, John and Johan and Lucinda and um, you know, Mapuana, just individuals, that's what society is made up of, who are busy and have their own life and maybe have no reason to think about someone who thinks or has a brain construction that's different. But those people need to understand and then from understanding, take action in new ways. It takes a lot to yell over the cacophony of the world right now and convince someone that it's useful to understand something new and then to take action on it. So we still have a long way. I think we need to approach it at many levels like representation. More characters and famous people, that's actually useful to see people with different kinds of minds represented in TV and movies and cartoons. We need celebrities to take up the cause, um, not about the origins, but about ways to integrate and to understand and to employ. We need companies that do things like what SAP does, for instance, which has a very big autism employment group. Um, we could use national leadership in, in many nations who put funding behind these things, put uh, interesting programs that motivate in the right direction. And we need even more technology that's even more fluid and easy to use that gives people access to their own brains and gives other people access to what the person that they're looking at really meant or thought, even if it didn't come out that way. You know, we have translation engines now, just barely, that can listen to someone speaking Farsi or French um, and translate it to you. Can we have something like that that translates behavior and, and mindsets across some of these lines of difference? So we have so many ways to help, so much work to do, and yet, I think a lot of hope, a lot of optimism that we are bending in that direction.